0: This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on July 21st, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode...
1: I've gone to so many different community meetings, and I can tell you from firsthand experience how much more deference communities that are rich and white get in the the planning process, how they get to co-create their communities as part of that, because they have power that they can leverage in that process.
0: That's Maisie Hughes. She's a landscape architect and arborist. And on February 27th, before the COVID-19 lockdown, she spoke at the Taking Nature Black Conference in Chevy Chase, Maryland. The event was hosted by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and sponsored by the Washington, D.C. region's Audubon Naturalist Society as part of their Black History Month celebration. The conference attracted hundreds of speakers and attendees who discussed environmental issues in the African-American community. Science journalist Bob Hershon attended the event and prepared a report. We'll also hear a sponsored segment from the Kavli Prize with a new laureate in nanoscience, Andre Kravanek, And finally, science reporter Shayla Farzan brings us a story about researchers looking for, instead of running from, copperhead snakes. But first, we'll go to the conference, Taking Nature Black. Good morning.
2: This is so exciting. Fred Tutman is the riverkeeper for the Patuxent River in Maryland, and a winner of the Audubon Naturalist Society 2020 Environmental Champions Award. Riverkeepers are part of a national nonprofit group dedicated to protecting waterways. For me, this conversation with myself began 16 years ago
3: when we started Patuxent Riverkeeper. And the guy that delivered packages to the office, it might have been FedEx or UPS or something like that, said, what in the world do you guys do? I told him, you know, we protect a river and we sue polluters and we run advocacy movements. And he said, wow, he thought about that. I could see the wheels turning in his head. He was a person of color. And he said, I didn't think that black people could do this successfully or that white communities would accept us doing this. So I realized that there was a perspective out there, a set of expectations about what any of us are likely to be able to do. And that we had to challenge those expectations,
2: all of us. As the only African-American river keeper in the U.S., Tutman acts as a bridge between a white-dominated conservation establishment and communities of color alongside the river he protects. Do you find challenges you know, being a person of color in working in this field?
3: Sure, I feel challenges, and they're intricate ones because I don't want to be identified as... The river keeper for the black folks, that's kind of futile, right? I I feel like I'm representing a movement that wants to protect a watershed that requires as much participation across many boundaries. And I do find sometimes that the messaging I use in black and brown communities necessarily
2: needs to be different because the problems are different and because the perspective is different. Environmental consultant Akima Price adds that that perspective may be at odds with the
4: perspectives of mainstream environmental groups. I've had to talk to people who, you know, bring, bring trees to neighborhoods that hadn't even considered the history of African-Americans and trees. People may not be jumping up and down going, yeah, trees, you know, older people may be like, you know what, trees don't represent safety for me. Who knows? But it's just being open and, and honest about and, and validating the fact that not everybody is a tree hugger and it's okay. And while
2: many people consider untrammeled parklands peaceful escapes from the stresses of the city,
4: people of color may view them differently. There's a lot of people that, you know, justifiably are afraid of certain parks because that's where people go maybe to, do, to dump bodies or where people go to do things that they don't want other people to see them doing. And she says that people may simply feel unwelcome, especially in federal parks. It's like that room in your house that has the plastic on the couch that you're not supposed to go into but looks really nice, but you can't go use it. So sometimes I think people perceive that as just an inaccessible space to them. That distance people may feel regarding these spaces comes partly from their not having been included
2: in the process of creating them. Maisie Hughes is a landscape architect and arborist and says that city planners pay much more attention to the needs and desires of upscale neighborhoods than those of low-income communities.
1: I've gone to so many different community meetings and I can tell you from firsthand experience how much more deference communities that are rich and white get in the, in the planning process, how they get to co-create their communities as part of that, because they have power that they can leverage in that process.
2: She's found that many people don't fully understand the process, one in which city planners create land use maps and decide the fate of each community.
1: Everywhere there is, there are people who decide what type of land use goes where, right? So if you have like a power plant in your neighborhood, somebody decided that your neighborhood is a good location for that power plant. If you have other types of pollutants in your neighborhood, a lot of times that has to do with like industrial land uses or commercial land uses. Those are decisions that an urban planner would make. And so if you notice that communities of colors tend to have these adjacencies with pollution, that's because somebody approved that land use. But people don't know that land use maps drive like these kinds of decisions. And a lot of times people are not part of the process when they're creating the land use maps. And a lot of times people are part of the process and get ignored in the process of creating this. And
2: it's not just a matter of who gets to live in nicer places. The decisions have direct health implications, which are exacerbated by the effects of climate change and now the COVID-19 pandemic.
5: As the planet warms up, as the temperature increases, the particulate matter and other things will cause additional cases of asthma, will cause additional uh, heart attacks, uh, and unfortunately a number of other uh, health-related conditions.
2: That's National Wildlife Federation Vice President Mustafa Santiago Ali.
5: So that's one of the reasons that they're hit first and worst. One, because they traditionally had all these types of polluting facilities, uh, and impacts in their, you know, communities. And and now, um, you know, they're getting also the overlay of all these various uh, climate emergencies. They have the disinvestment that have happened in those communities. And we know that with climate change, there actually needs to be investments because, you know, we, we know that the floods, the hurricanes, the wildfires, the extreme heat events, the extreme rain events, if you don't have the proper infrastructure in place, then you're going to be dealing with some very significant challenges.
2: 18-year-old Jerome Foster II has been concerned about climate change most of his life and was galvanized into action at the age of seven while attending an Earth Day event.
6: After that, I was like, how is no one talking about it? Like, after we heard the speakers, everyone was, like, so engaged in how they were talking about climate change. But as soon as we left the festival, everyone was like, okay, we're going to go back to our everyday lives. And, like, no one really understood that, like, everyday actions add to the crisis over and over again unless you actively... Change your lifestyle and advocate for system change. Nothing is gonna happen. So I just continue to read books. And being seven years old, I couldn't, I couldn't do much. But <laughs> I just read books, watched documentaries, and just continue to educate myself. And when I was like, gotten sixth and seventh grade, I was like, I'm done just reading books. I gotta tell other people
4: about
2: this. This is insane that no one's taking real action to stop the climate crisis. Foster started a climate change-related Instagram page, increased his social network footprint, and eventually launched The Climate Reporter, an international online publication with youth reporters in eight countries. In ninth grade, he launched a virtual reality company called Tau VR, featuring simulations designed to promote empathy and social justice. And about two years ago, he got an email from Greta Thunberg, not long before she began her climate strikes. And she was like, I'm going to start climate striking, um, and I'm in Sweden,
6: but I also want young people in the U.S. to start striking with me, and if you can, um, join in. Mm -hmm. So I was like, the White House would be a perfect place, and I started February 1st,
2: um, climate striking, right in front of the White House. Protesting in his blue Think Globally, Bike Locally t-shirt, Foster gained national attention, even more so when Jane Fonda asked if she could join him. But Foster says the climate strikes and marches weren't meant to be the news. They were meant to call attention to climate science. The news shouldn't be me or Greta or um, some famous climate striker
6: skipping school. And I think it should be about the science. and. We wanted to get media attention, but at the end of the day, we wanted to get people talking about frontline communities. And Greta and like so many other activists have now been shifting the attention to people that are in um, less, off, less, less well-off nations that are climate striking and paying the attention to them because they are the people that are being impacted by climate change the most right now. And just turning the attention to that, that's what news should be about, is about educating people about
2: the science. Foster has now launched another nonprofit called One Million of Us to mobilize young people to register and vote. Maisie Hughes launched a nonprofit of her own called The Urban Studio to address the inequities in urban planning that most concern her. And what is The Urban Studio?
1: The Urban Studio is a nonprofit charity with a very specific mission to advance design thinking for equitable, sustainable urbanism.
2: Wow, okay, can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> I
1: can, right? So like we have we're constantly talking about how communities of color are going to be disproportionately impacted by climate change, right? But we also know that the way communities are built, because they are built that they are designed to be a certain way. There's a whole design process that, that intersects with urban planning, landscape architecture, and engineering. And in all of these efforts to kind of create more sustainable cities, communities of color are consistently being left behind. And it, as you can see from today's conference, it's not that people of color are not interested in these problems. is that they've been constantly ignored in this process or constantly devalued right because of the transactional relationships we have with the land and so the idea behind the urban studio is to transform communities of color by teaching people how to design teaching not only designers how to be better designers but teaching people who live in communities of color how to design for their own neighborhoods and hopefully especially with young people, that they'll eventually go into design fields. So they'll be the decision makers. They'll be creating, you know, the policies and the plans that drive growth in cities. And then that way we can get more equitable and sustainable communities.
2: And while Akima Price started out working as a national park ranger focused on conservation, education, in parks, she now focuses on connecting with people where they live, listening to
4: them, and then figuring out how connections with nature can inspire and empower them. I'll work with parents that can't read, and I'll teach them how to play a match game with their kids in nature so that they can increase the number of hours that they spend with their children. I've done that in Chester, Pennsylvania, and it's actually worked where parents were able to take that, a letter to the judge that said they spent X amount of numbers with their kids in nature doing work with us, and that granted them more access to their kids on other levels. She's found that animals can provide a direct and visceral connection with nature, something
2: she's seen firsthand with a raptor program she facilitates, training young people to lead their
4: own educational presentations. And so I was training them on how to do raptor programs with kids. And so they would never come to work on time, but as soon as we started working with these birds, they were there before I was, they loved being around the birds. The birds didn't judge them, the birds didn't care with how much money they had. And then when they would get in front of these kids or take these birds, I've seen wealthy white men. And I've seen, you know, um, low-income communities. Like, everybody responds to these birds like, <gasps> you know, you get that same thing where half a second you're a kid again or whatever. And then, you know, having that person be able to facilitate that experience in other people took them to a whole new level of their job. They, they started to try to read better because they wanted the information necessary to answer the questions they were getting. And at the New York Restoration Project Family Day, a program supported by rap
2: artist 50 Cent in the Queens, New York neighborhood he grew up in, Price introduces youth to smaller but no less fascinating creatures, including a docile but fierce-looking black
4: scorpion. And this guy that came over, he was just like, oh, yo, what is that? You know, blah, 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 blah. And he was terrified, like, oh. And then he wouldn't leave or whatever. I said, well, you got a, you know, cell phone with a camera on it? Yeah. I said, You want me to hold you? Like, you don't have to hold this scorpion, but you could stand next to the case or whatever. So he was like, No, 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 I'm gonna hold it, I'm gonna hold it. So we talked him through it and he held it and gave him some facts or whatever, took his picture, and he was over the moon. He came back like fifteen, twenty minutes later with like seventeen, seventeen of his friends from across the street from the projects. And they're like, Oh, yo, da-da-da-da-da. And we let him Hold the scorpion, tell him about it, you know, and he remembered what we told him. He was a natural born educator from the way that he just picked that up. And so, again, I think we have it in us. It's just a matter of the exposure. Riverkeeper Fred Tutman has found that the key is not lecturing
2: or proselytizing, but meeting people where they are, finding common bonds, and taking the time to learn and understand their stories about nature, their connections, rather than imposing yours on them.
3: Right? You have to be open to the possibility that if you make this as exciting as a science lecture, you're going to lose a lot of folks who don't come from that place. They're coming to it from the sense of a heartfelt, s- my daddy used to teach me to fish in this river, or, uh, you know, I experienced my first, uh, you know, whatever on this river, or uh, I had sex for the first time on the banks of the river next People have said stuff like that to me. People have all kinds of crazy connections to these rivers, and you have to be open to let them experience them. If you're going to proscribe
2: those connections, you're going to lose people because they don't fit. Once people care, once they feel included, they'll begin to find the niches within the environmental community that speak to them. Then, whether it's ecology, climate science, urban planning, or just learning to enjoy and appreciate the natural world, the greater community that embraces environmental awareness, appreciation, and understanding will grow and thrive.
3: You know, as a riverkeeper with five heart surgeries in a row, my challenge is to make sure that this work doesn't disappear if I retire, fall over, get sick. And the way you do that is you build a movement that's embedded within the community. It'll never die. You can't stamp it out. For Scientific
2: American, I'm Bob Hershon.
0: In the past week, the president announced a plan that would, according to an NPR report by Jeff Brady, reduce the types and numbers of projects that will be subject to review under the 50-year-old National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, that NPR story includes comments from Sharon Buccino, a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council, that touch on the very concerns just noted by Maisie Hughes and Mustafa Santiago Ali. Buccino explained that the NEPA law was designed to give a voice to communities long hurt by pollution from highways, pipelines, and chemical plants that are disproportionately located in their neighborhoods. Buccino also said, quote, NEPA gives poor and communities of color a say in the projects that will define their communities for decades to come. Rather than listen, the Trump administration's plan aims to silence such voices, end quote. Well, despite his plan, I suspect he's going to hear those voices on November 3rd. Now we'll hear a sponsored segment from the Kavli Prize.
7: When Andre Kravonik set out to sharpen the resolution of electron microscopes, He did not receive universal support.
8: Fabian Peace, professor of electron optics at Stanford University, told me, Andre, you've gone crazy. You're bearing your career.
7: But Kravonek relishes a challenge.
8: I remember thinking,
7: if everybody expects you to fail, you can only exceed expectations. And Kravonek did just that, designing corrective lenses that focus the electron beam like a spotlight that scans back and forth across the sample in a scanning transmission electron microscope. For this pioneering work, Kravonik shared the Kavli Prize in nanoscience with the team of Harold Rose, Maximilian Hayter, and Newt Orban, who independently developed correctors to boost the resolving power of the conventional transmission electron microscope, in which a broad stationary beam illuminates the entire sample at once. Both correctors produced the first crystal-clear images of individual atoms. That clarity opens up new fields of investigation and to see how Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the Kavli Prize, chatted with Kravonik about designing tiny computers, seeing into cells without destroying them, and getting a handle on hydrogen, the smallest and one of the most abundant elements and a potential source of clean energy. The resolution of any microscope is limited by the wavelength of its illumination source. Optical microscopes, which use visible light to examine samples, can distinguish items a few hundred nanometers in size. So bacteria are visible, whereas most viruses are not. Electron microscopes, invented in the 1930s, can reveal objects that are much smaller, because... The wavelength of the electron is very, very much shorter. In theory, these scopes should be able to resolve objects that are a hundred times smaller than an atom. But in practice, they rarely get close. Because electrons are harder to focus than light.
8: You cannot make glass lenses for electrons because the electrons will not go through the glass.
7: They will get scattered and they will not come out. To change the trajectory of electrons, so they all arrive at the same point, the lenses you use are actually magnetic fields.
8: You make a big coil, spool, of wire and you send current through it and creates a magnetic field and the magnetic field focuses the electrons.
7: But electrons that pass through different locations in this field are deflected at different angles, producing aberrations that distort and blur the resulting images. The correctors designed by Kravonik and the team from Germany fix those aberrations by using a whole series of magnetic fields, aligned in different directions, as corrective lenses that redirect and focus the electrons. Nowadays, there's something like 120 lenses in a corrector. With that refinement, corrected scopes can even see hydrogen atoms which are only half an angstrom in diameter, or about 1 of a nanometer. In standard electron microscopes, the hydrogen is basically an invisible element. Well, that's a serious handicap because hydrogen plays a key role in pretty much all chemical reactions. You would like to know what the hydrogen is doing. Where is it sitting? What is it bonded to? Answers to those questions could even help drive the development of hydrogen as an eco-friendly fuel.
8: So you combine hydrogen with oxygen in the air and there's no pollution because what you're producing is water. If you can stuff hydrogen into fuel cells without having to keep it under huge pressure, that would be the best gas tank you can have it
7: for a car. Kravonik's interest in energy conservation also extends to computers. We make all kinds of really fun devices that would minimize the
8: energy that you need for a logic operation. How many gigaflops can you get per microwatt? So if you could do the computing on a much
7: lower power budget, that would be wonderful. That is definitely the frontier that people are exploring. For biological materials, the frontier lies in being able to image samples without frying them with a direct beam of electrons. And biological microscopy has typically been
8: a race between extracting useful information from the sample
7: and destroying it with the same beam that you're using for imaging. One way to get around that is to look at lots of identical copies, like a million copies of coronavirus.
8: But if you have 1 million images, you can combine them and eliminate all the statistical noise. You can produce amazing structural details.
7: That only works if you can get your hands on a million identical copies. Not everything works like that. So if you
8: have a unique cell and you want to understand what type of chemical substances sit at different places and how do they travel in the cell and how do they get synthesized, how do they get metabolized into something different, what I'm
7: hoping is that the vibrational spectroscopy might be able to do that. In vibrational spectroscopy, the electron beam is aimed slightly off to the side of the place you want to look at. An electron, when it goes next to the sample, it interacts with it at a slight distance and kind of sends out little feelers. The vibrations produced by those feelers provide information about the composition of the material without incinerating it. Krivanek, who is president of a company called Neon in Washington state, was knee-deep in this spectroscopic adventure during a sabbatical in Germany when the pandemic struck.
8: Hopefully the world will return to normal. I'll go back to Germany and uh, I'll be able to say uh, this project worked out great or it was a crazy idea, it didn't work at all. <laughs> we'll find out. If you know how it's going to turn out, then it's engineering. Uh, if you don't have any idea, then it's called research. And that's what we're doing right now. This podcast was made possible through the support of the Kavli Prize. The Kavli Prize recognizes scientists
3: for pioneering advances in the fields of astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation. Andrei Kravonik is the co-founder and
9: president of Neon Company.
0: And finally, more than 3,000 snake species slither across the planet. Many are hard to find in the wild, which makes them difficult to study. The copperhead is an example. Its well-camouflaged body blends in with leaves and branches on the forest floor. Even veteran snake trackers have a hard time spotting a copperhead in the forest. But a group of scientists in Missouri is cheating a little with technology. Reporter Shayla Farzan has the story.
10: As he gets ready to perform surgery, Chris Hanley listens closely to his patient's heartbeat.
0: We're just giving
5: some uh, fluids and some pain management, some analgesics and some
0: antibiotics before surgery.
10: The patient weighs about as much as a half stick of butter. That's normal for a young copperhead snake. Hanley is a veterinarian at the St. Louis Zoo. He adjusts his face mask and lays out his tools on the table. Once the anesthesia has taken effect, Hanley makes an incision in the snake's skin with a tiny scalpel and slips a radio transmitter inside its body.
5: The trickiest part in these little snakes is getting it into the body cavity.
6: You don't want to just go under the skin because the body will kick it out like a, very easily like a splinter.
10: The implant is part of a research study tracking the movements of these snakes in eastern Missouri. The copperhead is the most common venomous snake in Missouri, but we know surprisingly little about its basic biology. How does it find a mate? Where does it live? How many are there?
9: It's like putting together a puzzle where you always get more pieces added in and the picture just keeps growing and growing.
10: Ben Jellin is leading the snake tracking study. He's a biology professor at the St. Louis College of Pharmacy. The idea is simple, at least in theory. Tag wild copperheads with radio transmitters, put them back where you found them, and then see where they go. That's how we ended up at Powder Valley Nature Center in Kirkwood, Missouri. Graduate student Brittany Nyer holds a large metal antenna that picks up the signal from the transmitters inside the snakes. They're looking for an adult male copperhead they tagged last year. We're
9: trying to figure out where exactly he is and if he's with somebody else or if he's eating, if he's mating, uh, where he's moving to and hopefully eventually why he moved to where he moved to.
10: Because copperheads are so hard to find, the team has only been able to tag about five so far at this particular nature reserve. But Jellen says sometimes they get lucky and find a new snake right next to a tagged one.
9: Snakes know where other snakes are. People don't know where snakes are, no matter what we think we know and what our best guess is. Uh, so with transmitters in snakes, a lot of times they can lead us to other snakes. So today may be a lucky day or today may be a regular day.
10: The beeps from the receiver are loudest at the edge of the parking lot, meaning a tagged snake is close by. Jelen and Nyer balance on top of a concrete wall, scanning the ground for any signs of the snake. You might be in there. Oh, look at this. See there?
9: (laughs) See this big hole?
10: Yeah. He's like... Basically, right under our feet somewhere. Yeah,
9: he's right under <laughs> our feet. <Maybe laughs>
10: some- For every snake sighting, they collect a range of data, including GPS coordinates, temperature, and humidity. They're putting all those data together to try to understand why copperheads are only found in certain places within the reserve. Jelen is especially interested in understanding where copperheads overwinter. Last year, he tracked a small number of individuals and found something surprising. These snakes spent the winter in rock piles underneath major roads.
9: You think about human influence and manipulating the environment, what has that done uh, and why did at least two of the snakes elect to hibernate in that particular area. Uh, How is that different than the natural areas that are there? So people always think habitat fragmentation is, of course, bad, but there could be some other unintended consequences that may be beneficial and may not be (laughs) beneficial.
10: As humans have moved out of the cities and built homes where forests once stood, snake populations around St. Louis have been squeezed into smaller and smaller slices of habitat. Many little habitat patches, like Powder Valley, are now bordered by major roads. Bob Aldridge spent his career studying snakes in the St. Louis area. The retired St. Louis University biology professor says these small, isolated populations are at a higher risk of disappearing.
0: If your population is large enough, you can lose a fair number of them, and the ones that survive can spread back out. Whereas once they're isolated, that's it.
10: Roads, strip malls, and other artificial barriers can keep snakes from migrating to find mates, he says. And that's a problem because it reduces gene flow and can lead to inbreeding.
9: During the breeding season, males will travel long distances. So if you prevent that, then all of a sudden this whole population ends up just exchanging genes between one another.
10: That's a bad thing, says Aldridge, because harmful mutations can build up in the population and make it more likely that it goes extinct. Right now, it's hard to know if these copperhead populations are at risk of disappearing. For one thing, we still don't know how many there are or how far they travel. Ben Jellin is working on it, but it's been slow going. Last year, one of the pregnant females he was tracking drowned in a flash flood. And it was a big blow to the study.
9: What's challenging is finding the best way to try to answer questions, and it's difficult to do in the field. There's a reason that lab studies are amazing, because you can control all the environments. Uh, Your snake won't get washed away in a flash flood. Uh, Your snake won't get run over. It hopefully won't develop disease. But then, of course, if you're in the lab, you're not in a natural setting.
10: For now, he says he's keeping his fingers crossed that nothing happens to the copperheads he's been tracking. Maybe in five or ten years, he'll have a better understanding of this mysterious species and how the snakes are doing in their human-dominated environment. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Shayla Farzan.
0: That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet. Whenever a new item hits the website, our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mersky. Thanks for clicking on us.